39, unless, of course, you've got your own Bible. And in that case, this is a great day because we're going to get a highlight, some fantastic texts. Uh, I want to give you as a service a little bit of an insight into the, the tact I'm taking. In the first service, I'm going to be preaching the content theoretically, of Romans chapter 1. I'm going to pick major verses. I'm going to talk about them at length and set them in their context. In this service, I'm going to now go back and we're going to, we're going to hit the same ideas, but we're just going to go like a railroad straight through the text. I'm not going to set it up. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time kind of laying the context. We're just going to dive in and let it come out as we go forward. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1 begins, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We could spend, honestly, 15 to 30 minutes talking about the name Paul. We could. We're not going to. You know, he's the Paul who was converted on the Damascus Road. He was a persecutor of the church. He is opening this letter to the people in Rome who he has not met. They're a church in Rome. He's saying, I am a servant of Jesus. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm working for Jesus. He called me. That means he set me apart. Those are all tied together. Notice to call is to set apart for something very specific, the gospel of God. Now, gospel is one of those words that in English means all sorts of things now. And I'm not even sure where the English version gospel comes from in terms of its etymology. But you no doubt have heard someone say this means good news, right? I hope you've heard that, that the gospel means good news. The Greek word is euangelion. Say that with me. Euangelion. You can hear in angelion the word angel. Angel, which means not flappy butterfly light being. It means messenger. So it's the you message and the EU there on the front is the word good. Like if I say a euphemism, or a eulogy. I'm speaking good things, right? So this is the euangelion, the good message. Paul says, I am called and set apart for this good message. And a key part of the book now is what's that? What's the good message? He's going to tell us right now. So don't let all of your Lutheran doctrine that I know you have memorized fill in the blanks for you. That's good. Good for you. But, but let's see what Paul says. Okay, let's see what Paul says. Set apart for this gospel. First, he says in verse 2, which, that means the gospel, it, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Holy Scriptures meaning Old Testament. This means that the good news, the good message was promised before the New Testament. That the gospel of God is existent in the Old Testament. And he's going to explain this right away in verse 3 by saying it's about David concerning his son, that's God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Uh, the Greek word for flesh there is spermatos. Spermatos, you can hear it, it's right there. From David's seed would be the way you would say this. And of course, this is tied to the promise given to David that a son of his would be set upon his throne to rule over all humanity forever and ever. And while Solomon was a really great run, he wasn't Jesus. 
It wasn't Jesus. So that came to be not about Solomon, but a prophecy, a promise of what was going to come. That's the first part, descended from David according to the flesh. And now we're in New Testament talk in verse 4. Declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So not only is this foretold that there will come a man born of woman, born of David's line, but he will be the son of God. And the way you will know this is that he will beat death. Genesis 3, uh, the proto-euangelion, the early gospel, right? that he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So this good news that Paul has been set apart for is the simplicity of he is risen. Hallelujah, in which you incorporate, notice the use of corpus, body, you incorporate in Jesus' resurrection also his death, because he can only raise from the dead if he has died. His death being the vicarious atonement for the sins of the world on the cross, which is what he achieved in the death. But again, the resurrection vindicates this, and all of this makes him not only man, but also God. So the incarnation is there. Just like that, you've got all of Article 2 of the Creed. You see that? All of Article 2 of the Creed is right there as the gospel. When I ask our confirmands to talk about law and gospel, I ask them to, to tell me that law is a command and gospel is a promise. I say, great. And then where are these written? Show me them. Point to the commands and the promises. And they always go, uh, 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 Ten Commandments? Like as if that's a hard one, right? Tell me the, the Ten Commandments. They usually will get it though. And then I say, now the promises. And they're like, mm, baptism? Oh, that's good. That's good. But it wasn't what I was going for. What am I going for? The Ten Commandments are the law and the creed is the gospel. The creed. What Jesus has done for you. Who Jesus is. Who the Holy Spirit is now for you. Again, that is right here in verses 3 and 4 of Romans. That Jesus has done this. And now in verse 5, we have the result of what he's done. The good news, he is risen. Alleluia. What has he done by that resurrection? Through whom, that's him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, verse eight, 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, first thing there is just put your finger on that word called and go all the way back to verse 1 where he says, Paul called. Yeah? His apostleship and grace and faith is also that you might also have grace and faith. And I spent a lot of time in the early sermon. You can find it at sp815.org on what grace is and how obedience of faith isn't obedience. It's trust. For now, let's just start with that, right? What is the grace? The grace is a promise you can trust. What's the promise? He is risen. Alleluia. He is writing to declare he's set apart for that news. And this whole book's about that news. He wants you to know that news. Who's he writing to? Verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Notice the called language there again. This is the root of the word church. I know you've heard the word ecclesiology, even if you didn't like want to remember it. Yeah, it's, it's the word the study of the church, the ecclesia. That's just 
the word we translate as church from Greek, but the root of the word isn't church, it's call. Church means called out, right? And so here, to the called to be saints, to those who are set apart is the language we've used here. Notice the connection between God's voice and your being distinct from the world. Notice also how there are those who will not heed the call. And this letter is not for them. It's not for the unbelievers, for, for you, the believer. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we can unpack those words, but they're also very common words to begin a letter with uh, in the New Testament era. Verse 8. First, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. You know, the church in Rome was known by the other Christian churches. That's what that means. And I, and I pray for you. I've never met you. I've never visited you. I didn't plant you, but I pray for you. Verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the good news, there it is, in the gospel of his son. What's the gospel? It's about Jesus. That without ceasing, I mention you, verse 10, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 11, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach, there it is, the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We could spend a lot of time there, but we're not going to. The short end of this is that he's writing to a congregation he's never seen. He's telling them, I don't want you to think I'm ignoring you. In fact, I've always wanted to come and visit you. And at other points, he will make the implication he would like to visit them as a stop on the way to Spain. He wants to go to Spain to preach to barbarians. Now, back in this time, in fact, they would have been considered barbarians up there toward Gaul. Yeah, um, But he has wanted to do this, but he's not been able to do this. It is likely that he is writing this letter either from Corinth or from Ephesus on the way back from his second journey. Second journey? Yes, yeah, second journey um, down to Jerusalem. This is the one where he's going to bring an offering from all the congregations because there's a famine down in Jerusalem. And this is also where he's going to get arrested. And he's going to be taken all the way through the book of Acts to the end of the book of Acts. So that he will get to visit them eventually, but it'll be in chains. It'll be in chains. But he's saying at this point, that's, you know, I want to come see you. I just haven't been able to. Hopefully I'll be able to see you soon. Why? Because I want to tell you about the son of David who is risen from the dead. Yes, let's try our other call and response. Christ has died. Christ will come again. He's eager and under obligation to preach this to everybody, to everybody. Okay, so now we're going to focus a little more in on verses 16 and following. Verse 16, he says this. This is why he's eager right here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I don't know if you remember, uh, for about an entire year, I carried a big crucifix around. 
I finally had to stop because I was getting legalistic with myself about it. Like I was starting to believe if I stopped doing it, God would stop blessing St. Paul and stop blessing me. And that's a, that's a lie right there. So I gotta, I gotta put my legalism aside. But the reason I was carrying it around and the reason I hope to do so again in the future was this, to confront my shame. It was amazing how I found that when I would walk into a store with this giant crucifix, I'd put it down. I kind of hold it next to my Bible or to the side. I, I didn't walk in like this, you know, bold and upright. And I, maybe that would be a bit weird. But what I wanted to see and what I felt was how much my heart was afraid. I was afraid of someone saying, what's that? I was really afraid of someone telling me, you know, you shouldn't carry that in here kind of thing. That never happened. Uh, what, what did happen more often was people were like, oh, that's a beautiful crucifix. I gave away more Sons of Solomon packets that way. My conversations that started that way. Why are you carrying a crucifix? Oh, because I'm a son of Solomon. I pray the Psalms every day. And if you haven't heard of that, please pick up a Sons of Solomon packet on your way out today. In any case, the point here is shame. The point here is shame. And if you think you're not ashamed of the gospel at all ever, I don't know that you've thought about it very much. Although we want to be able to say with Paul too, I'm not ashamed of it. Don't get me wrong. In your truest heart, in your Christian heart, in your regenerate soul, you're not ashamed of Jesus. But your regenerate soul and your flesh, they're in, a, they're in a fight with each other. They're in a fight. And I would contend that right now, at this time in history, Christian churches are more ashamed of Jesus than we've been in a very long time. And it's not exactly our fault. They've shamed us. They told us we should be ashamed. You're on the wrong side of history if you think you shouldn't operate on little boys and make them into little girls. They're, they're shouting at us left and right, radical, foolish things. But the power of these devices by which they control information, it's enough to change people's minds without them knowing their minds have been changed. Huh? And so again, the more time you spend in the whirlwind of what they teach and what they say and what they just are only entertaining with you with, they swear. The more time you spend in that, the more that you're just kind of natively be a little hunched over with regard to your faith. And what I want you to see here is Paul's like, I'm going to go preach wherever I can preach. And if they kill me, so be it. I'm not saying you have to pick that up yourself today. I'm saying let that inspire you just a tad. One of the most amazing stories about St. Paul is when he is in Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and a riot starts and they want to kill him. And I don't know. I mean, I, I imagine it in my head probably more than it is. But, you know, there's a massive crowd of men around them. And the way they kill these guys is they throw stuff at their heads. They kick them and beat them until they're dead. So that's starting to happen. And then this isn't supposed to happen. This is not the rule of law. And so the Romans come in and they grab him. So he gets surrounded by a squad of soldiers. And I imagine they pick him up and they carry him. You got this crowd all around, like trying to get to him, shouting and screaming. They're carrying Paul. They get out of this crowd and they're at the, the garrison where they can go inside. And Paul's under arrest. So that, that is an issue. But, but Paul's like, hey, excuse me, Mr. Centurion. Yeah, yeah what do you need? Um, can I talk to them? Can I, can I preach? You guys stand right here. This angry crowd that wants to kill me, I'll just talk. Can we do that? Like, that's the way the guy thought. I can't claim to have that inside of me, but I can be inspired by it. Yeah. I can pray for it. I can ask for it. And again, I am not ashamed of the good news. I am not ashamed that he is risen. Alleluia. Because that word... We just talked about it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Believes what? That he is risen. Alleluia. This helps explain a lot of the divisions in the church, by the way. There's lots of different Christians out there. There are Christians who got 
all of it right. There are Christians who got a lot of it wrong. The distinction ultimately is going to be who is Jesus. Is he the son of God? Is he the son of man? Did he rise from the dead? If you got that much, you're, you're, you're probably a Christian. Now, you know, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses want to get squiggly with it, but they, they end up denying him being the, the son of man and son of God thing. Right? So they're not, they're not with us. They're not with us. But in terms of the Roman Catholics and the Baptists and the Methodists and many of the Pentecostals, who I think are dead wrong with devilish errors about all sorts of things, and don't get me wrong, the Pope is the Antichrist. Nonetheless, that church still teaches he is risen. Alleluia. And so to not be ashamed of that unifying factor in an age like ours where the churches look so weak. Remember, we're not that weak. We have a God who's already beaten death and he's kept us alive this far. Why would he abandon us now? Uh, Why would we abandon him? That's a better question. Why would we start being ashamed of what he has done that cannot be undone? The gospel, the knowledge of Jesus' resurrection is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. And we could spend half an hour on that phrase, but we'll we'll let that one lie there for a moment. Uh, For in it, verse 17, in it, that's in the gospel again. In the good angel message about Jesus is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. This is the the thesis statement. Can I make you all go to sleep? This is the thesis statement of the book. That means it's the main idea of the book, that the righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus' resurrection from faith for faith. Or very literally, out of faith, into faith. It's ex pistos, ace pistos. Out of faith, into faith. And here we got to start asking whose faith a little bit. And part of the answer is God's. God's faith. Now, we don't tend to think about God as having faith because we don't think about, well, because we like to think about ourselves first is actually the reason. And so we think about faith just being my trust in God. But there's more to faith than that. Faith is about faithfulness. Yeah, My trust in God is me being faithful to my God. God being faithful to me is him never leaving me nor forsaking me. It is him saying what he means and meaning what he says and always doing both without reservation. So that his word will always prove true. So out of faith means out of the faithfulness of God in that there's no darkness in him at all. And whatever he says he's going to do. And then doubly so now that he has become incarnate in the one man Jesus Christ. That man has a perfect faith of man. You see this. So that in Jesus the faithfulness of God is speaking to you. And in Jesus the faithfulness of a perfect man is trusting God. Father, thy will be done, he says. Let this cup pass, but only if it's your will. That's the faith too. Out of that faith, which God has and is put into Jesus, now there is faith in you being created to trust God. So that you would believe something which, by all human estimations, is stupid. He is risen. By all human estimation, it's a bad idea. Go show me another one. Nobody does this. People don't rise from the dead. How can you prove it? And we talked about that some last week with the Easter sermons. There's a good defense of this, by the way. But, but again, even with that, it just seems 
downright unreasonable. And yet what we have found as Christianity, whether you're a Catholic, whether you're an Orthodox, whether you're an Baptist, is that there comes along this message that Christ has died. And these people who didn't believe before believe now. Oh, I believe that. It doesn't make sense, but I believe that. I, I call, I hope in that. Huh? This is the only thing I have now. And it takes over our lives. Uh, this, again, is out of faith for faith. And this is God's righteousness. God's righteousness. His certainty. His reliability coming to us so that, and again, thesis statement, verse 17 and then 18. No, it's just the end of 17. Excuse me. Uh, as it is written, he quotes the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, remember how he said the Old Testament has been talking about these promises all along, and he boils it down to just a few words here. What is the good news? It is the fact that because Jesus is absolutely righteous as a man in all faith, he will live, breaking forth from the bonds of death. And this is not done just for him, but for all. Huh? So that in Jesus, the righteous lives by faith. And I'm trying to say that in a way that you hear both him and yourself in it at the same time. In Jesus Christ, the righteous shall live by faith. He's the righteous one. He's alive from faith for faith. But now look, you believe it. And that is then you being alive from faith for faith. And this is the good news. In action. At work. Yeah? Oh, oh, it's so good. All right. In fact, it's so good that that's the end of the first chapter. Only it's not. Because they put the chapter break like 20 verses later. But it's, it's the end of the opening section of the book. And now he's going to turn a corner. And this corner is going to go from chapter 1, verse 19, all the way into chapter 4, verse 25. It's got two sections that make it up. And the first of those goes from 1, verse 19, all the way to 3, verse 20. The purpose of that first section, which we're going to look at not only this week now, but also next week, and the week after is to talk about what someone wonderfully in the, in the narthex asked me, were you trying to talk about this? As she used a nice old Lutheran term. She said, original sin. As that's exactly right. That is what I'm trying to get to, is original sin. So we have a whole section on what it means to be sinful and unclean, as we confess in our Confession and Absolution liturgy. But the reason why I don't want to come right out and just say, well, it's about original sin, is I don't want you to fill it with a bunch of ideas. I want you to get the idea from the text. I want you to see that what the text teaches is what we as Lutherans have preached all along. Yes? And Paul is going to go again to great lengths here to try to expose how deep this idea is, original sin. And he's going to do so in a way that leaves none of us off the hook in this matter. And that is then uh, why it's important to wrestle with this other idea, okay? So, uh, original sin. All men are sinful. I mean, we can just kind of say that and go home, right? But the problem is it leaves us a little, a little dry. Whereas if I say that every sin on this planet done by every evil person, the worst one you can imagine, what? Who is it? I mean, every, Hitler's the boogeyman, right? But honestly, there, there have been really bad people on this planet personally doing significant wicked things. So, so think, of, think of one and then realize that you deserve to go to hell because of them, because you're their brother or sister. You're part of the same body. That body's name is Adam. And because in one man, Adam, all fell, so all die. 
That's corporate guilt. That we are all held accountable for all. That humanity is not a bunch of individual islands running around doing what we want. We're like one big rotten dead tree dropping disgusting fruit everywhere we go. And the root is so bad that the de- no, no, that Jesus is going to cut it down. Yeah, That, I guess, is original sin. And we can talk about it that way. But I like how, how ugly corporate guilt makes it. That kind of thing that the kids in the classroom always hate, right? Like, oh, uh, Johnny did this one thing and we all had to sit there for 15 minutes. That's not fair. We don't like corporate guilt. We don't like being held accountable for what's near us. We don't like the idea of, say, innocent blood shed by others on our land having an impact on us. But that is the testimony of Scripture. That's why shutting down abortion clinics is a good idea because it removes the innocent blood far away rather than living next door to one. You're in the, you're in the category, you're in the area of demons. Yeah? So this whole section then is about how we, no matter who we are, no matter how good we are, will never be able to be free from what mankind is. It's going to get really ugly next week and the week after. This week's still kind of the, the nice play. But I want to shove the ugly into the nice play part so that we don't, we don't get ahead of ourselves. Because what tends to happen when you read chapter 1 and 2 is you kind of in chapter 1 are like, oh, yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, them. They're, they're that. That's bad. And we don't want to do that. You're the them in, in what he's going to say here. Okay? You're the them. So, verse 18, major, major opening run here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the main idea. Everything else is going to support that idea. That God is revealing his wrath against mankind because we are two things. We are godless or I think it says ungodly here, but I like godless, asabea. We talked about that just a couple weeks ago. Godless, and we are unrighteous, adikia. You can hear the alpha privative. If you're a, a linguistic nerd, you'll like this bit. The alpha privative, that's when you put an A on the front of the word and it makes it a, the opposite of the word. And a real easy example, a theist believes in God, an atheist believes there is no God, right? Alpha privatives. They come from Greek. They're all over English if you start looking for them. But you hear them in the Greek here. Asabea and adikia. So it's godliness, but not. And righteousness, but not. And the wrath of God is revealed against all of these things which are in us. That all of us are ultimately idolaters who bend and twist rather than godly people who seek the straight and narrow. And no matter how much we want to tell ourselves, well, I was better than Bob, like, it doesn't matter. You're actually made of the same stuff as Bob, and, and, and that's, that's the problem. Yeah. So this wrath of God revealed against unrighteousness of men who, don't miss the end of the verse, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So a key part of original sin, the thing we are corporately guilty of, is that we don't like the whole truth, nothing but the truth. We can't handle the truth. We're always twisting the truth, and mostly to try to make ourselves look better than we are, 
with no qualm at all about making others look worse than they really are. And ultimately, the truth isn't even about us. The truth is about who God is. And who do we think God is? Well, we think is someone who we can earn our way to. Someone we can prove ourselves to. Someone who will love us if only we will just. Again, remember how I put the crucifix aside? Because I had begun to use it to justify myself. And I caught myself thinking, I'm going to be more blessed if I care. If I don't take it out with me, things are going to go wrong. It's so in our nature, you, can't, you just can't escape it. Yeah? We suppress the truth. What's the truth? That he's risen. Hallelujah. He has purchased you with that. You are his now. You are called, chosen, elected. You will never die. That's the truth. That's the God you have. He's not a harsh and just man who will give you tit for tat. He is a man of grace who has decided that even though you're a traitor, he loves you anyway, and he loves you with such a powerful love, you'll be made the most loyal servant there ever was. That's the truth. Huh? Now, God's wrath is being revealed against those who suppress the truth. We understand it's talking about all of us. Let's not distinguish, though, here, or fail to distinguish, that there are outside of Christianity. Without Christianity, all you have is suppression of the truth. Even where the have the truth in other religions, it's there to suppress the truth that Jesus is God. Huh? I, one of the interesting things about Judaism, I'm talking about the religion here, Judaism teaches many things the Old Testament teaches, but none of those really matter. You can find Jewish people who don't follow almost any of the rules of the Old Testament, but they'll all agree about one thing. Jesus is not the Messiah. It's the central unifying factor of Judaism is that Jesus is not the Messiah. So whatever good they teach, and there are some great people out there who are Jewish. They're nice people. They're good neighbors. But their religion suppresses the truth about who God is. The Old Testament word for that is idolatry. And God's wrath is being revealed against idolatry. That's what he's going to explain now a little bit more, how idolatry works and what follows. Okay, so here's, here's how it works. This is the theory. Yeah, Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. That means that all mankind knows there's a God. They know who God really is. It's obvious. If you look at creation, you can figure out who God is. The problem is we can't. Yeah? We should be able to, though. We're just too blind to see it. But look, verse 20. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They being all mankind. We do not have a right faith in God, even though you could just look at creation and, oh, I know who God is. He's obviously eternal and glorious and righteous and good, and it would uh, probably crush me because I'm evil. We suppress that, but we're without excuse because it's right there to be seen. So no one can actually say it's not fair. There's no, it's not fair. All the wrath of God is fair. It's exactly what it is. It's justice. That's why it's actually good. They're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, that's mankind, that's us, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, knowing who God is 
instinctively. That is, having, uh, say it differently, um, having God reveal himself through the creation to us did not stop us from choosing to worship the creation instead of him. And he gives this list here of images of men and beasts and all these things. And we think we're so much better than those stupid old people in the Old Testament who set up golden cows and only worship those images. And then we go home and put our feet up and let some guy on the screen tell us how life is. You ever think about the talking image? And we give it a whole lot of credit. Whole lot of credit. We listen to these things as if they were God. Now, I'm not going to ever tell you you're not allowed to use a screen, but I'll tell you this. If you compare your screen time to your Bible reading time and it looks like this, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. And does that mean Jesus doesn't love you? No, he loves you. He's calling to you. He says, give me some of your time. Give me some of your heart. Look at my words. See how you're set apart and different. Don't be like the the blind and darkened masses foolishly following whatever some guy says. They exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images. Therefore, verse 24, the result, and this just describes our culture to a T right now. God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. But he doesn't stop there. It's the same idea. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature That's homosexuality. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The point there is not that they are worse than us. Okay? We're all under this condemnation. The point is, is to show how once God gives you up to your passions, you will do things that not only hurt you, but don't make any sense. It's not natural. How can I say that? You know, we have some ducks. And the guy duck gets with the girl duck, and then there's baby ducks. Now, here's some geese, man. The geese will not stop, by the way, in my, in my lake. Too many geese. But the guy geese gets with the girl geese, and there's baby geese. The folly of sin is shown in that man is so inflamed with his own ignorance that we'll get it completely upside down. And then we'll say it's right. So in this way, homosexuality is just a very good example of the foolishness of sin. And that's what he's using it as here. Of those who could know what's natural just by looking, look at nature. It's the way it works. God made it that way. Duh. You could know that, but we are too busy wanting what we want. And so God's like, fine. You want what you want? Go do it. And you do really upside down kinds of things. And so the other major idea coming out of that section is this. I'm even going to try to read this one. It's so important here. Bad behavior is the punishment for idolatry. Bad behavior is not the problem. 
Bad behavior is the punishment for the problem. The problem is false worship. The problem is not knowing the truth about God. And the punishment God sends upon those who don't know him is bad behavior. And that goes for every level of sexual immorality, covetousness, all this stuff. Everything that you can imagine, including what you find in your own heart, it's all a result of bad behavior. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. It's, it's all a result of idolatry. It's not a result of bad behavior. See, I did say it backwards. Yeah. And so again, you look at our society and you're watching these kids who are like 12 years old deciding they're trans. They haven't even like become gone through puberty yet. And they're going to tell you that they're trans, but they're at home scrolling a screen five hours a day. Right. How, how is this happening? It's not, it's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out they're being programmed. They're being programmed by men whose consciences are seared, who don't even realize they're worshiping demons. And what we need to do as a people is see that and not give into that anymore. Call it what it is, the idolatry that it is. And then realize if there's bad behavior going on like that, it's because we're worshiping falsely. And then what? Then repent. Dear Jesus, have mercy on us. Dear Jesus, open our eyes. Dear Jesus, don't let us walk in darkness. Dear Jesus, you're our God and our King. We know we can trust you. Save us. He always does. He always will. We have that as Christians. There's no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. Which means there's no reason to be ashamed of your sin, which is where this is actually going, by the way. We sang it in the liturgy. Chapter 6 is going to get there. Live as though you have no sin. So, so we're going to get there. But we can only get there when we acknowledge the wrath of God is justly revealed against us for our folly. Look how foolish we are. Look how upside down we are. Uh, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Chapter break. Not the best place for a chapter break. The content's going to go on, so we're going to circle back and try to end with some some uplifting here uh, as we close. But that list is the, the closest thing to a list of sins that Paul's going to give in this book. And it isn't really meant to be like a, a list. You're not supposed to like be like, okay, these are all exactly the sins and we have all of them now listed here. His point when saying those things, like we know what these things are. We know what darkness is versus light. We know what folly is versus wisdom. The problem is, is that we are given over to our folly. And so we can find all manner of these things in ourselves. And as Christians, we're always repenting of it and trying not to live according to it. But we live amongst wicked people who don't have that wisdom. And so again, why are we surprised? Having taken God as an idea out of our culture, having had Christianity bashed in the news cycle for at least a generation or more, where they mock us and scoff at us, and certainly the children are not being brought to church, they are not being raised in the church, why are we surprised? That the wicked man look like wicked men. Like, duh, you live next door to Philistia. They're, they're kind of awful people. Corporate guilt. You're on the same planet. 
You don't get to escape the fire just by saying, I didn't do it. Where Paul is leading with all of this is our certainty that out of the faith of Jesus Christ, for our trust in him, there is now no condemnation for we who are in Christ Jesus. So we are set free to live as people set apart, called by this good news with our eyes set on the life of the world to come. And he has guaranteed by great and precious promises that this community, this communion shall not be overrun in this age. That it shall not disappear from the earth. That this seed, because it's good seed, is going to bring about a hundredfold fruit. The question for every single congregation in the U.S. right now is, do we still believe that? Because if we do, we're going to go back to our Bible. That's how this country was built as a Christian country, if it was a Christian country, where it was a Christian country. is because the people read their Bibles. They knew their Bibles. If I said, find Book of Romans, no one would have been like, where? I don't know where that is. I don't don't, want to read the Bible. It's just too hard. Like, you just wouldn't have had that. Not amongst the the, the leadership, for sure. There were always people who were just hanging on. But now, those people are gone. They're not just hanging on anymore. So again, the question for every single congregation, for every single church by, and I'm not talking about my denomination. I'm talking about all of us. Is, are we going to believe this again? Are we going to decide this is more important than what the talking heads want us to believe? Are we going to put our money where our mouth is? And when the talking heads say, we're going to do this to your kids, say, no. I'm not paying for that subscription anymore. I mean, it's good news. You hear this? I mean, Netflix lost 40 million in a couple weeks. 40 million. Serves them right. And God bless the people who canceled their subscriptions. I I had to cancel mine about two years ago. Um, Same reasons. Same reasons. I couldn't take it anymore. So when are we going to decide? We can't take it anymore. Whenever we can decide that entertainment is not worth it, if it's not going to teach us who we are, and when really, when are we going to find the bread of life as a people? Um, Jesus is going to do this for you, St. Paul. This is all promise. This is all certainty. We're not here hearing this and reading this because it's not going to be here in our midst. They're going to have to come and burn the church down and kill us all. And honestly, if they do, we'll be singing hallelujah when they do it. But I, I don't think that's our future. I think our future is that we're going to be a city on a hill. We're going to be a light to people who walk in darkness. And they're going to want what you have. When you have your heart enlivened by this word, when you have the light of Christ inside of you so that you have hope when everyone else has despair, they're going to ask you about it. And my prayer is that by that point, you will have maybe highlighted one or two of these verses and have gone back to it and studied it. So you you just say it. And again, it's so easy. He is risen. Hallelujah. Why are you different? Well, I have a king. I'm a citizen of the U.S., but I have a king. And he's a real man. He's got a real throne. He's running everything. He's running everything, you say. Yeah, everything. Why does it look so bad? Oh, oh, because he's given us over to our passions to destroy ourselves, but not me. Not you, you say. No, not me. I mean, I'm going to die with the rest of us. But uh, I've been purchased by his blood. And so, yea, though I die, yet I will live. And so I bow the knee to that king. And I receive that blood according to the institution of his words the night he was betrayed. And I trust with certainty that whatever this life throws at me, height, depth. Right, this is Romans 8. I'm getting way ahead of myself. Eight chapters down. Yeah, Height, depth, uh, darkness, light. Nothing can separate us from Christ. Huh? That's where we're going, St. Paul, and I think you should have every hope, and you who listen online, every hope to know these are certain promises 
um, even as we wrestle with what it means to be people under the wrath of God for corporate guilt. In the name of Jesus, amen.